0: Welcome to the Why God Why podcast brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. My name is Peter Englert. I'm here with our wonderful producer, Dylan Carnival, and also the New York State crew director, and co-host, John Amayo. Why God Why is a podcast where we ask the 21st century questions about God that you never thought you could. Today, uh, our guest is one of my friends from a former life when I worked at Valley Forge Christian College. His name is Brian Lee. You heard him in the background. He is the worship pastor at Cornerstone Assembly of God in Richmond, Virginia. The question he is going to answer is why do I feel the pressure to be perfect? John. Yeah. John, you're always good for like these thoughts and questions. So mm. get us
1: started. Deep thoughts with John. That's how we're starting this off. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm just. I think this is a very pertinent question. Uh, I, I think I might say that every every episode. I don't know because we talk about the most pertinent questions available. But anyway, I, I just do think this is real in our society right now. There is probably never been a time where it's less acceptable to be like uh non-perfect than in our society right now if you screw up in any little way let's just take social media for example you will be piled on immediately uh, if you notice like um you know celebrities or athletes endorsement deals if they if they botch up in any way they're immediately dropped because companies don't want to associate with people who are less than perfect, who don't have the ideal image. And so image becomes everything. We're living in that kind of society where image is dominating and the image that dominates best is the perfect image. And so that's just something we got to really, really fight against big time. And so that's why I'm looking
0: forward to having this conversation today. I have a friend named Cynthia, and she'll say like she hates the word perfect. And so whether you like the word perfect or not, um, I think there's actually this motivation to be perfect. And I've encountered more and more people that actually procrastinate because of perfectionism. They wouldn't say that. And so as I think about this topic today, one of the things that I appreciate about Brian, you know, Brian is both a minister, musician, graphic artist. And if you want to talk about, and there's probably some other stuff I'm missing, but if you talk about like three areas where there's a subtle pressure to be perfect, Mm. I couldn't think of three bigger uh, areas. So I think he's going to bring a lot of insight. And I'd also just kind of throw this out there. I've worked with a lot of creatives and where I think Brian, oh Brian Brian knows where I'm going. I think creatives feel this pressure to be perfect. And if you're listening and you feel that, I think Brian's gonna speak to that. So you've heard of uh, Brian, you know, we're we're not good with pleasantries or transitions. So we're just this is a this is an episode about not being perfect. So we're yeah. just gonna go right into it. Leaning in. lead in. Yeah. Uh, so do it. Yeah. So Brian, tell me when when was the first time in your life that you just felt this pressure to get everything right, or dare I say, be perfect?
2: Uh, the day I became an older brother. Ah. <laughs> I grew up as the oldest of three kids, first generation, only son of an immigrant Korean family. And that in and of itself carries a whole lot of baggage and weight to it. And then you add on top of that that I'm a pastor's kid uh, in an all-Korean church, and there's a whole lot of extra weight. So. Uh, oldest son and only son carries a whole lot of weight and baggage in a Korean and or most Asian family. So it's kind of this pressure to carry the name, carry the honor of the family and or whatever it is. Um, And then being responsible for my two younger sisters as well on top of that. Um, And then growing up in church, it was always, it felt like the weight, it often felt like the weight of every other kid's decisions fell on me. So if someone else misbehaved, messed up, did something wrong, whatever, somehow it came back around to me and why wasn't I watching out for, or taking care of, or fixing, or whatever it was, or somehow I was the one that got in trouble and not them. Um, so I think just kind of growing up in that kind of environment, it just really sharpened me to be like, hey, look out, something could be going wrong here. Hey, what, about, what are they doing? Hey, is that the right thing? Is that the wrong thing? Um, I think that's when it started.
1: Wow. <laughs> wow can can you give um you know cuz cuz i think that's super per just super it gives a great perspective what you're what you're talking about and not everybody that's listening probably can relate culturally but i i do think it's important for us to lean into that a little bit and ask that question like culturally speaking being the eldest like what kind of pressure did you experience like, can you, can you dial down on that a little bit and help us understand like the dynamic that's there between your, I don't know if sure. you, you know, your
2: family dynamic, like what, how did that work? I can, I can try to, I think. And I, I, and I'm still not even sure how much of it was actual pressure versus just perceived pressure as being the oldest. Sure. So, and I, I think you hear that a lot from eldest children in families. There's that whole birth order book and kind of, you see the, the weight of responsibility typically falls there or they just carry it whether or not it's asked of them or not. Um, I think I carry a lot of that. And then just hearing growing up in an Asian Korean culture, it is very much the oldest carries the rest of the family, or at least the siblings, cousins, whoever. Mm -hmm. And then being the oldest of all the kids in my dad's church, it kind of, they all became my responsibility somehow. Um, Or at least I perceived it that way because of the way things were presented because of you know, different comments that happen here and there because I'm the one who's the most punished just because I'm the oldest, because I'm the one who's supposed to be responsible. I mean, I was leading the Sunday school classes when I was in second, third, fourth grade, which probably doesn't seem right, but that's the way I grew up. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, Brian, I I think something that might be helpful, uh, tell us about your career path and maybe where your career path kind of intersected with... You know this idea of perfectionism or that pressure, whether it's subtle or even loud?
2: Sure. Uh, I have a very windy career path. Uh, if you go backwards to my school path, um, was always interested in the arts, was always doing art classes, band, choir, all that kind of stuff in high school. Decided I wanted to be a Disney animator when I grew up, so my band teacher, of all people, gave me an application to this college, the university of the arts in Philadelphia and said, Hey, you should go check this out. Cause I know you want to do art, not music with your life. I was like, okay. So I did check it out, went there, got a four year degree in animation. My senior year, God got a hold of me and just said, yeah, you should have been doing music the whole time. I was like, yeah, I know I really <laughs> messed that one up. Um, graduated just barely uh, and got my first job working at a church in South Philadelphia as their music director. Um, and teaching music at a Christian academy for kindergartners through eighth grade. I figured as long as I knew more music than an eighth grader, it was safe to teach. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did that for about five years. And I think being in that role, having no formal training in Bible, in music theory, in teaching or education, any of the things I I felt the extra weight on myself to do it the right way. I wanted to do right by the people who hired me and showed me grace enough to take pity on this poor student who didn't know anything and had no real experience. It was just kind of, yeah, I grew up leading worship at my dad's church. I kind of was on the youth worship team at the other place. Um, but I don't have any real experience. I don't have any like training or any of that kind of stuff. So it was, it was me just saying I need to do this the right way and try to do as much as I can. Um, which I think led me to the next decision, which was after five years, kind of felt like I had gone as far as I could go with the worship team, the choir, the leading, the the teaching. And I said, you know, I, I really feel called to do this. I think I should go back to school and actually learn how to do it now. And that's how I ended up at Valley Forge Christian college, now university of Valley Forge, um, which is where I met Peter, met my wife, met all these other wonderful people. Um, did three years there and kind of the same thing because I already had five years now of life experience working, brought that into my schooling. It's like, yeah, I need to get better at these things, but also I've done a lot of them. So how do I bring that together? And also I'm, you know, five, six years older than all the other kids in my class who are 17, 18 year old freshmen. And here I am like a 26 year old, something like that. Um, so often also felt like I was setting an example in that kind of a way too, even though I wasn't usually, (laughs) I was a pretty socially stupid, uh, an immature person, but I, I grew. Um, so after Valley Forge graduated and got a job working at the college, um, in their development office at the time, which then became the marketing department, I became the graphic designer for the school. I was also helping and volunteering at a church plant in the area with their creative arts and with their worship stuff. I was on staff for a very short time. Um, And I think we volunteered there for about seven years. Um, Yeah, I think it was about seven years at Spring Valley, Um, doing worship, doing creative art, doing all of those things. And I think the environment at the school at the time, um, and I think in most ministries that we've all been a part of, is you do more with less, Mm. right? So when it's this pressure to crank out an insane amount of material on very little time, very little budget, very little resources, Um, but put out the best that you can. And I felt this pressure to say, Hey, if I'm the graphic designer for the school, if I'm doing whatever it is, and kind of what we put out is the face of the school, Mm. or we are the voice of what we're representing them to be in the community or as they try to recruit or whatever that is. Um, and hearing those kinds of things and getting different pieces of feedback and then whatever that was left there after, I think we were there for about four or five years to get my first post-college real church ministry job. Uh, we moved to New Jersey, went to a Banzo church up in Scotch Plains, about 45 minutes outside of New York City. And we were there for about four years, I think, um, as the worship pastor as well, but also part of the creative arts department. So it was the same kind of thing. My job was worship leading, but I also really did a whole bunch of creative and marketing and design stuff. Um, and same thing, it's just, I feel like when we're called to do something for the Lord, we're called to do it with excellence. And in my mind, that translates it perfectly. (laughs) And I know we'll talk more about that later, but it's kind of this whole, and and that area is so, it was really interesting economically. Um, You've got a whole bunch of really rich people who are living in the suburbs of New York city and commuting there every day. And then you've got really poor neighborhoods just across the street. And it was a really great mix of both of those things, but it was this sense of expectation and Entitlement might be the wrong word, it might be the right word, but it's just this sense of everything has to be great because they're used to the best. Right, right. Um, so it's presenting that kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, this is, uh, I'm, you're you're helping me understand a bit of myself, even in the midst of all of this, too, because uh, uh, I'm a firstborn also a PK. So this is a great mm-hmm. combo for me. So uh, I'm exploring, you know, the depths of my soul as you're sharing. I'm like, oh man, I can resonate <laughs> with that. Oh boy, I can uh-huh. resonate with that. So um, so I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you here. As, as right now, if you're to take a snapshot at your life right now, are there areas where you feel like, man, I, I, this is an area where I feel like maybe more than others, I have to get it right in this area like I have to nail this one um or else
2: yeah that would be with my family Hmm. um I one of the biggest lessons that I've learned with perfectionism is that you gotta let it go because it's never going to be because we live in such an imperfect broken world um and I know we'll get to that in some later questions but I I mean the original answer I wrote down is just all of the areas have to be perfect. (laughs) I feel the pressure for whatever comes across my desk or whatever fleeting thought runs across my brain. It's like, Oh yeah, that has to be right. That has to be perfect. But I think what I've learned is if you're, and I just heard it the other day is just put, if you're succeeding at work and failing at home, you're failing. Mm. And, and I think because of some of the pressure that I put on myself or that was put on me. um, at our previous churches or previous positions, it's this idea that if it felt like things were falling apart at home or that we weren't there for each other, or I wasn't able to be available because I was being pulled in all the other directions, it still didn't really help us at all. Yeah. Because you bring your home with you wherever you go. You show up at work and it's like, yeah, whatever happened last night, whatever happened this morning, you're carrying that with you. Yeah. And if things aren't right there, and if you're not whole there or if things aren't taken care of, then that's gonna affect everything else anyway.
1: Mm. Mm. So would you describe yourself now sometimes Peter and I have these conversations, you know. So Peter is a uh Enneagram expert. Yeah, I think you already Stop. know this. Yes. It's yes. Not expert. Someday no, we're gonna no. just interview Peter <laughs> on the Enneagram. And I don't know if you you're familiar with this or not, uh, Brian, but are are you familiar with that or would you consider yourself very Yes, okay. So yeah. but what what number would you consider yourself on that? Yes. You're holding up a one for all of our listeners I at sure home. Am. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> my wife is a also college, a one. College. So, yeah. My, so my wife Yes, I know. Yeah. So, so I I I have a fond I have a fondness for ones, you know. So, and, and I appreciate ones a ton. So, and what you bring to the table, always reforming, mm-hmm. always making things better. Um, I think that's beautiful, but the, there's also a pressure to that too. Of like, sure, everything can be reformed. You know, we were just talking about this yesterday. Mm-hmm. Her, her kind of sense that everything can be reformed, like that—that's that's a weight to carry around with you all the time. Um, mm-hmm. sure <laughs> yeah. Have you felt like that before in your life? Like everything, like I, like looking at all of life as you know, this can be reformed
2: kind of sense? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, my, my, I'm about a year and a half older than my younger sister Mm -hmm. and then another year and a half. So I would say since that day, I have felt that pressure (laughs) and I'm 41 now. And I think, you know, I was, I can honestly say that learning the Enneagram has changed my life Mm. Um, because I was always fascinated by personality assessments, trying to these secret tests that somehow read your mail and tell you who you are, right? Um, And and I remember doing uh, the Myers-Briggs with Daniel McNaughton and kind of learning that through teams. I was like, wait, how does this guy know everything about me just by me taking this little test? And going through life, I experienced quite a bit of hurt and abuse from other leaders. And when you realize, you hear this a lot in churches, is that hurt people hurt people. And I think what I've come to understand is even more true than that is leaders who are self-unaware really hurt people and just leave this wake of destruction in their path. So I vowed at that moment to, to not let myself be that leader who didn't know enough about themselves to realize the effect I'm having on other people. Mm. So I started to dive into all these different personality assessments, Myers-Briggs, Strengths Finders, and then the Enneagram. And when I found the Enneagram, I was like, holy cow, not everyone sees the world the way I do. And it wasn't in a descriptive, put you in a box, hey, here's how you act and what you do it was like here's why you do things the way you do and there are eight other ways of seeing the world that people don't see the way you do and I was like oh okay so not everything has to be better not everything has to be perfect and when I learned that it was such a sense of grace that it like broke me the day that I learned it um and I just sat at my desk I think for the rest of the day listening to stuff and just reading it over and over again um because when I heard that it resonated so much because I've heard that message of grace over and over and over in my life from leaders, mentors, pastors, and it didn't click until that day. That's a message for one is just that grace is enough because nothing is going to be perfect on this earth. And that only Jesus is. And I was just like, Oh, you know, (laughs) I just took this big breath and I was like, that means I don't have to be perfect. And that means I don't have to expect everyone else to be perfect. Like what a Mm -hmm. life changing thing. And to, I mean, the gospel is the gospel, and I always knew it. But when I learned the Enneagram, I understood it.
0: So, you know, one of the the fascinating features is this idea of the self-critic. So I, I guess my question to you is, um, bring us into the Brian Lee mind for a project, <laughs> even, you know, after you get done playing worship music. Because there's there's two categories of people here. There's people that have this really deep self-critic they probably identify as a one and then there's Mm -hmm. the rest of us um so you know bring us up there i mean let's just take for example after a sunday morning what are the thing that what is the conversation that you're having in your mind about the you know just about that
2: yeah it's a it's a deep dark hole (laughs) Uh, and it spirals pretty quickly and i think um And I think this is the common misperception that a lot of people have about people who identify as a one or people who may not even know that they are a one, but just have those perfectionistic tendencies. It's just, they tend to come across as overly critical or overly negative. Um, But what they don't, what the thing that kind of gave me a lot of freedom by learning the Enneagram is that it's not, the motivation is not there to make things critical or negative. The motivation is like, this could be so much better. Mm -hmm. We can do more. And it was like, oh my goodness, yes, it was great, but, but this could be better, this could be better, that could be better, this, <laughs> this, got, this went wrong, we missed that. Da, da, da. So that, my brain is going through this whole list of every single transition I missed, every note we hit wrong, every band member that missed this cue or that cue, or whatever it was, or hey, we didn't quite engage the congregation that way, or oh man, we missed that, we really botched that transition, or oh, I don't think that really landed the way it was supposed to. Um, and I think what has helped me the most is identifying what the win is. Mm-hmm. And knowing that perfect isn't the goal, but knowing what the goal is. So in worship, you know what we tell the worship team every week, or the choir, or whoever's up there is just like, hey, the goal is to engage the congregation and lead them in worship. So if we have a perfect set, if we do everything exactly right, but they're not following us, then we're not leading them. Got. Gotcha. So what we're looking for is engagement from the congregation. And if we, if the soundboard crashes and we lose power, which has happened twice since I've been here. Um, guess what? We're just going to drop everything and just sing really loud and lead the congregation. If it means we don't have words on the screen, I'm just going to say the words before we get there so that they can still follow us. And that's the win. Um, if it's for preaching or a message or whatever else, or or a graphic design piece, it's, well, what are we trying to communicate? And did we do that? Well, Mm. if we did great, if we didn't, okay, then there's something, there's room for something there. And it's learning how to let go of, this is the worst. It's let it, learning how to let go of things be when they're just good enough. Mm. So you could spend the rest of your life perfecting
0: things. No, that's great. Well, and and just listening to you talk, because I do think that there's this deep desire to be authentic, but then mm-hmm. we still have per- perfectionists. So I, I do a little. I, I do a little looking at graphic design stuff, and like right now, like in some ways, the more ugly your design is, the more eye catch it, because there's a functional. So I'm curious, kind of, we live in this time where I'm going to throw everything out on social media. And then we still feel this pressure to be perfect. How are you navigating, you know, kind of that new change? Because I think you're sharing a lot of the traditional, but I think this is a new time for perfection in a new way. I'm just curious how you're navigating that.
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think I, I was, it started firing off all these different things in my head when you guys were having conversation before we started, we talked about um, social media stuff and how you put yourself out there and all these things. And I think there's a really distinctive line between perfection versus just being genuine and authentic. Mm. Cause you look at social media and you look at the, the way people present themselves or the way brands put themselves out there or like all this pressure on middle schoolers and high schools and young adults that to be Instagram perfect or Pinterest worthy or whatever it is. It's like you see all these reality shows about cake fails and all these other things. Um, because life is so much more often just like that. And it's, if the desire is to be genuine and authentic and just who I am in the world, that's different than being perfect for Mm me. And I think that, we can spend a lot of time polishing our pictures or just setting up things just right on my desk before I take a picture. And I think we're all guilty of that quite often. Um, or, you know, you take six selfies of you and your family before you post the right one, the right one. Um, and I think that's a really good distinction to make is it's are we shooting for what's perfect or are we shooting for what's genuine? Cause I think perfect can often come across as fake mm. when we're comparing it to authentic or genuine. Yeah. Um, I think, in terms of social media and what's out there that way, I think that's kind of more the the tension and the rea- the reality of it.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're getting my mind firing on some of this stuff, and I'm thinking about you know as you really try to to approach kind of the world from a reforming kind of standpoint, like making things better perfecting Mm -hmm. things that are there right now i imagine that sometimes you 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 kind of hit a wall where you realize i'm not making any progress here at least if you're a human like i am uh so uh you know or it feels like we all kind of hit these moments and then i think for most of us we try to cope in some way we try to like Mm -hmm. fill in that that, that feeling of like, oh, I'm not doing this well by coping and w- by one strategy or another. It, are there ways that you tend to cope if you know, man, I'm not, I'm not hitting it right now or things just aren't perfect? Are there ways that you deal with that internally?
2: Yeah, so I think that's another area where the Enneagram has really helped me is that this idea of having grace for myself, um, which then allows me to have grace for others. Um, and it was that whole idea of if what, if one of our greatest gifts from Christ is grace and I can't accept that for myself and how in the world am I going to show that to everyone else? And that's that's the side of me that I knew was the unhealthy leader part of it. It's like, if everyone's just feeling the pressure for me to do better or to do more perfectly because I'm expecting that of myself and them, then that's going to get all of us nowhere fast. Um, if I can loosen up on some of those standards of perfection or whatever it is, again, just to define what the win is and just to shoot for that, to succeed so that we succeed together. Um, allowing people the grace to mess up or to not do perfectly gets us so much farther down the road. Um, you know, it's, and it's I like quote from the Sleeping at Last song, this grace requires nothing of me. Mm. And if that required nothing of me, it, I should also require nothing of everyone else around me so that I'm not leaving destruction in my wake.
0: You know, so one, you know, just because I think perfection, as I said before, it can lead to procrastination. It can also mm-hmm. lead to working harder. Um, you know, what are areas that you procrastinate because you feel the pressure of perfectionism? And what are areas that you're like, I mean, you bury the hatchet and you're like, we're going in on all of this, you know, or do yeah. you just tend to do one or the other?
2: No, it's both. It swings. Um, the areas where I tend to procrastinate the most, and I discovered I'm a, a really heavy nine wing, so I can lounge around and do nothing with the best of them. <laughs> um, but it's also. But then, have you read John Acuff's book, Finish?
0: I haven't, but I've heard. I think I've read enough tweets that I probably read it. You know.
2: Yeah i I honestly haven't read it either, but I heard I did the Blinkist thing and listened to it because I wanted to hear. And it, it, that's kind of the premise of it is we procrastinate, we don't finish projects because of perfectionism. Mm. And for me, I discovered it's this whole thing of, well, if I can't do it perfectly, if I can't do it right, I should just not start it Mm. for fear of not doing it perfectly. So for me, what I discovered is typically if it's a new initiative, if it's a new project, if it's a new idea, I'll tend to take way longer to get it started just for fear of not starting it the right way. And on the other side of that is if it's something I'm really familiar with and comfortable with, then I can really take way too much time trying to Tweak just this thing or that thing, or it's, you know, finding the right chords, the right note, the right design, the right pixel font, whatever it is. So, in areas where I'm really comfortable, I tend to overdo the perfectionism thing. In new initiatives and projects for me, that's where I tend to be like, eh, I'm not going to do it right the first time, so I should just not do it. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean and P- Peter and I have even talked about this. I mean, we aren't ones. We we I don't I don't think I even have a one wing. I I'm pretty sure I don't. I'm pretty. But anyway, um the uh but but we even talk about that in relation to this podcast. Like it's really easy to want to have this perfectly polished, you know, podcast, you know, <laughs> rolling out episode after episode of perfection so that, you know, millions of people are loving us. And it's, oh, it's just beautiful. I mean, we, both of us have this grand idea, right? I mean, it, uh, it's, it's it's fantastic. But the problem is sometimes that grand idea can prevent you from actually moving forward to actually right. doing things because you're like, well, it's not. We don't have a million subscribers yet, so I guess it'll, it's never going to happen. So, you know. But after
0: your episode, we will. And yeah,
1: now. Yeah. Now. <laughs> this is the point at which it all changes right here, right here, right now. But for, And I imagine so, – so we struggle with that. I imagine there's a lot of people out there who are listening right now who are struggling with that because the right. pressure in our society is – You know, this isn't something that only one type of personality deals with. We all have to deal with this. What are some just next steps? Like what what is what is something that you would encourage somebody who is like in a spot of inaction right now because they're like, I got to make sure this is perfect. That's what they're feeling. What are what's the next step that you would have them? You would just
2: encourage them to make at this point. Yeah. The next step is just start Mm. Do do something. So if it's a blank canvas, throw something on it. Mm. And that will at least inform you of like, yeah, that wasn't right. But at least now, you know, it wasn't and you can do something else. Uh, No one turns in a final draft on the first try. Right. So it's like, you just got to start writing something. You got to start doing something, playing something, creating whatever it is. But until you get those first words on the paper, you won't know if you're headed in the right direction or not. You won't know how to craft it after that. And for me, it's in, adi- in addition to learning to just start something and then tweak it as you go, it's also just this idea of it's a constant letting go. Um, it's a letting go of impossibly high standards for myself and for everyone else. And it's it's making room for gray. Because I'm also, I'm so black and white, right and wrong. This is the right way to do it, the wrong way to do it, or whatever it is. And it's like, it's making room for, no, there's a whole lot of gray in between there. And we got to make room for that too. So it's, just start something, let go of those heights, just constantly let go of those standards and make room for grace.
0: Wow. I think that that's a great place for our, uh, our uh, last question. Um, so we always ask, what does Jesus teach us today about uh, this question? And so, Brian, uh, what we do is John and I will try really hard to get it perfect, but we'll then let you... Really perfected from So John, you want to go ahead?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Brian. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us about this. And I, you know, our society is increasingly perfectionistic and we're increasingly mm-hmm. critiqued. And I think because of that, we're increasingly tired. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're just worn out from pursuing perfection. At least a lot of us are. And I, I mean, so so I, I think of the call of Jesus when when Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and and carrying around heavy burdens, and I will give mm-hmm. you rest." Like that is a call to place our value in something beyond what we're doing and place it in the hands of somebody who really can give us rest. And so yep. I think for all of us who struggle with that perfectionism, that might be the biggest challenge of Jesus to us today is just to let him give us rest rather than earning that on our own or mm-hmm. by by just giving up. Um, that's not truly rest either. Um, the true rest is found in placing our identity and our worth in him. So that, that would be my take on it.
0: So there's this story um, in the gospels, the biographies of Jesus, um, and it's repeated. And this, you know, Jesus has just gotten done teaching thousands of people. And he goes to the disciples and he says, you feed these people. They've been here all day. And these disciples are are thinking about feeding Jesus, you know, and they're like, we don't have any food, we don't have any money. And like this little boy with five loaves and two fishes comes and Jesus is like, okay. And he starts and he feeds everybody. And I guess I think about that on, on two levels. Number one, it's, it's the radical grace of God that God sees our needs and takes care of it. But number two, it's God's not asking for, The perfect meal. He's asking for what you have. And that doesn't mean you don't give your best. I mean, the little boy gave all of his lunch, but it is having this framework and context that Jesus takes the very little that we have to offer and then multiplies it. And I think going back to what Brian said, I love what he said. He's like, when the canvas is out, throw something on it. And I think that God blesses that. That doesn't mean you you just throw something on and that's your final draft. No, it's it's okay to go through that process and God gives grace in there. So Brian, take us home, man.
2: <laughs> well, thanks for having me on, guys. I really I really enjoyed it. Um, and John, you you nailed it cuz that's exactly what I wrote down for my answer which wow. you can see. And I can
1: verify that on the screen right now. Look at that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I love that's it. That's what I wrote
2: down. Hey, um, just count that to one me for all John. Who are, that's exactly right. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And I think for For someone like me who always feels the pressure to do more, to do right, to do perfect, to set the example, whatever it is, that passage brings me such peace and such Mm -hmm. lightness, I think. Um, And I I find a ton of hope in the words of Paul, actually, not to upstage Jesus, of course, but Paul writes so much about law versus grace and sin versus life. And um, I was reading through Romans, I mean, Paul, the law abiding, rule keeping, Morally principled, whether he was being zealous as a Jew or zealous as a Christ follower, it was always, hey, the law is this. I was the this of this and I was the best and followed, you know, kept every rule. And then he's the same one who writes, none is righteous, Mm -hmm. not one of us. And all have sinned and all fall short. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And that whether you follow the rules or not, whether you're perfect or not, and newsflash, none of us are, that there's grace for us and that there's righteousness given to us because of Christ. Um, and Victoria, my wife, she shared this great quote with me the other day from Charles Spurgeon. this: If any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, that's my life. I feel like no matter, I was like, no matter how badly someone thinks of me, I'm, I'm probably already beating myself about something else. Mm. Um, and it was just that idea. It's like, you know, and, and in this, instagram world and social media world the perfect world it's like we all present ourselves to be better than we are or like this, this fake thing that we've been talking about it's like no you know when you really look at it you're probably worse than people think you are anyway <laughs> so don't we just all need the grace of god don't we all need the righteousness of christ to be clothed in and to know that no matter what we're carrying that christ's yoke is easy that his burden is light and can't we just walk in that and just present what we have
0: Wow. Um, I hope that this uh, this podcast was super encouraging to you. Uh, if you want more information or if you have any questions, uh, we are at whygodypodcast.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And as we like to say, sharing is caring. Um, and also, don't forget to review us on iTunes to raise us up and also to help us know that being imperfect still gets you somewhere in the world. So Thank you so very much, Brian, and uh, thank you, John and Dylan. We hope you have a wonderful day.